So let us pray now before we turn to God's word. Our Lord God, we pray that as we sit under the word of Christ, that you would work in us the very mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Well, first in this psalm, let's examine the superscription that we see there to the choir master, a psalm of David. And the first thing to remember is that the inscription is inspired, even though it doesn't have a verse number. I guess you could call it verse zero. It's just as inspired as the rest of the psalm. And we see that it's uh, devoted to the choir master or the chief musician. It's intended uh, for the public worship of God. And originally when David wrote this psalm, that choir master would have been a professional, a professional lead, Levitical musician. Um, and he would have been probably leading a whole choir of, of Levites singing and making music. And you can read more about that if you're interested in First Chronicles 25. Um, it's actually one of my favorite chapters. You can ask me why afterward, but it tells all about how David arranged uh, the, the choirs. And now, of course, we don't see up here a, a choir of Levites, um, but that's because Christ himself is our choir master, as it were. He is our chief musician. Of course, we worship Jesus Christ, um, but he's also the one who is leading us in worshiping the Father. Uh, in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, uh, it, it replies the words of the Old Testament to Jesus saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. I will sing praise unto you. And, and Jesus is the one leading us in bringing worship to the Father. Well, we also see in the inscription that it's a psalm of David, and it doesn't have any details about uh, when in David's life this took place, as it does in some psalms. It could have been when perhaps he was being persecuted by Saul. Um, we don't know exactly. Uh, I think of the place where uh, David is at a very low point in his persecutions by Saul, and he says, I, I will now perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's almost given up all hope. Uh, we don't know exactly, and perhaps the Holy Ghost chose to to just uh, leave it out um, because it's generally applicable to all sorts of difficult situations. Well, as we look at the body of the psalm, um, it neatly divides itself into three main sections. First, in verses one and two, we see a cry of distress, a cry of distress in verses one and two. And then in verses three and four, uh, David issues a call for deliverance. He has a call for deliverance. And then finally, in verses five and six, we hear David's commitment to devotion, a commitment to devotion. Or if you want something very sh uh, much shorter, you could just think of three words, uh, protest, prayer, and praise. So verses one and two are his protest, verses three and four are his prayer, and verses five and six are his praise. Well, let's examine first then David's cry of distress in verses one and two, and we'll spend a little more time here. 
You'll notice as we read these first two um, verses, see if anything stands out to you that's repeated. Children, it's always good to note repeated words in the Bible. So see if you can notice any repeated words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Well, those two words that keep being repeated over and over are how long. And this isn't just a request for information as if you were wondering, uh, how long is it until daylight saving time ends? No, this isn't a request for information. It's, it's, a, it's a cry of someone who can't endure any longer. It's as if uh, he's not just saying how long, but why has it already been so long? God, why have you abandoned me for this long? Uh, the, the question how long is a question that Children love to ask. Children, you've probably asked things like, uh, how much longer are we going to be in the car? Or how long until my birthday? Or uh, how, how long until I can have another piece of candy? Or something like that. And we might find it somewhat annoying when children ask again and again, how long, how long? Uh, but God doesn't mind hearing this question again and again. Um, in fact, this is a very common question in the Bible. Throughout God's word, uh, 23 times, no fewer than 23 times, people ask how long to God. And every single one that I could find was actually a a positive instance. Um, uh, There are nine psalms in which the psalmist asks how long. Job asks how long. Uh, The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel all ask, Lord, how long? Habakkuk and Zechariah ask how long. And then in the New Testament, uh, you might think in Revelation of the martyrs under the throne, and what are they crying out to God? Well, they're crying out, Oh, how long, O Lord, how long, holy and true, before you avenge our blood from them that dwell on the earth? So we see that even these saints who are in heaven, they're still asking, How long? And it's a question that we can ask. It's a question we have to ask oftentimes because isn't it true that our timing is often shorter than God's timing? Um, I, otherwise, I don't think we would see this question so often throughout Scripture. We don't ask it impatiently, of course. We ask it reverently. We ask it with trust. But, but we can ask how long to God, and we ask it urgently. I think of Psalm 119 and verse 26, where the psalmist makes an almost astounding request. It almost sounds disrespectful. He says, it is time for you to act, O Lord. And you think, how can you tell God what time it is? Um, but it's, he's asking urgently and yet respectfully. And what is he asking how long about? Well, we see four specific uh, times that he asks how long, and it's because he has four specific things that he's feeling. He's feeling forgotten, he's feeling ignored, he's feeling dejected, and he's feeling oppressed. Forgotten, ignored, dejected, and oppressed. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, in the first part of verse one, he's feeling forgotten. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Do you ever feel that God just isn't answering your prayer? Uh, perhaps there's a wayward child that you've been praying for for a long time. Or perhaps there's a job situation and that you've been pleading with the Lord about and nothing is changing. Maybe it's some sickness that's been going on a long time. Or, or perhaps there's a broken relationship that's really troubling you. I love in prayer meeting when we hear children uh, raise their hand for a prayer request to request uh, that someone's a friend or a family member be converted and some children I know you've been praying for specific people to come to know the Lord for many years and it might feel like God is not answering. Um, it almost 
might lead you to wonder, has God forgotten me? Um, just like when perhaps you've been at the playground, children, and you're, you're on the swing set or you're going down the slide and suddenly you look around and you can't see your mom anywhere or your dad anywhere and you wonder, just for a moment, did they go home without me? Have, have they forgotten me and, and left me here at the playground all by myself? That actually happened once to one of my 10 younger siblings, but only once. Um, but it's not a good feeling to feel forgotten. And almost worse is to feel ignored. In, in the second half of verse one, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Um, it's one thing for God to forget, but it almost seems worse if God hasn't forgotten, but he's intentionally ignoring us. Um, it's, it's just a terrible feeling. And he goes on in the first half of verse two to describe how he feels dejected. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? It's one thing just to feel sad, but there's a particular type of uh, just heaviness that sets in when the darkness goes on and on and on. Um, And we see that the psalmist is taking counsel in his soul and he has sorrow in his heart. Uh, It sounds like he's turning things over. Things are churning inside of him. And we know that sometimes it's good for us to talk to ourselves, right? We see lots of positive examples in the Bible of people talking to themselves. Like in the psalm where the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself and that's good. Uh, But when God doesn't seem to be in the picture, uh, the more we talk to ourselves, often the worse we feel, right? All God's children feel this way sometimes. Even people of great faith, like the Apostle Paul, you might remember how in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 7, he, he describes that without were fightings and within were fears. And perhaps you're not feeling that way tonight, but um, it, it's always good to, to be studying the laments in God's word so that we'll be prepared for when we do feel this way. And also so that we can weep with those who weep. Uh, because I can guarantee you right now in the congregation, even if you are feeling joyful, that's wonderful, but there are probably brothers and sisters here who themselves are feeling dejected and you want to be able to sympathize with them and come alongside them. And also to remember those who are persecuted, our brothers and sisters all around the world who perhaps are in prison right now and feeling dejected and we can pray on their behalf. Well, we see that the psalmist feels forgotten, he feels ignored, he feels dejected, and he also feels oppressed. He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And further, down in, in the second half of verse three and verse four, we can see he's concerned that he might sleep the sleep of death and that his enemy might say, I have prevailed over him. He's concerned that his foes might rejoice when he's shaken. Now, when you hear about people rejoicing when something bad happens to you and trying to triumph over you, uh, children, you probably know the word for this. What do you call someone, another child, who just is really mean and delights in making other people miserable? Well, we call that person a bully, right? Have you ever experienced or had an interaction with a bully? I hope that you yourself haven't been a bully to other children, Um, but, but bullies just pick on others. They delight in making them feel miserable. And this psalmist feels bullied. Uh, We face many enemies in the Christian life. Uh, You probably uh, know the, the classic three categories of the enemies that we face, the world and the devil and the flesh. Uh, The world is our enemy and it could be in the form of external persecution. You might find yourself mistreated uh, by a colleague or an employer or a neighbor or a family member. And the devil is is one of our great enemies. 
Uh, we, we face spiritual warfare and, and God, uh, while he, he never withdraws completely his protection from us, he might allow us to um, be persecuted by the devil for a time, just like Job was. And then there's the flesh, ourselves, and our own sins are, are our enemies. If you'll turn over with me just a few psalms later to Psalm 38, we can see an example of this. If you turn to Psalm 38 and verses 3 to 8, here's an example in Psalm 38 of, of the, the psalmist being weighed down and almost persecuted, as it were, by his own sins and by the consequences of his sins. Psalm 38 and verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Have you ever felt this way that you're just swallowed up in your own sins and they're weighing you down and oppressing you? Well, when we see these four elements of feeling forgotten, ignored, dejected, and oppressed, I think there are two takeaways we can um, gather from from how the psalmist uh, presents his cry before the Lord. And the first is that it's okay to tell God how we feel. Um, When when God gives us this language in the Bible, it's, it's as an example for us. He, he gives afflictions that last a long time, but he gives to us faith that lasts an even longer time. And we can use that faith to take our complaint before the Lord. Now, you might know that it's not good just to follow our feelings, but this is different from following our feelings. We're not being carried along by our feelings. Instead, we're taking our feelings and we're carrying them before the Lord. Just like it says in James, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Well, we also, and as we um, look at how it's okay to tell God how we feel, we we also learn that it's even okay to uh, complain to God. We're not complaining about him, and we're not really complaining against him, but we are complaining to him. And the Holy Spirit inspired this, uh, I think in part to show us that we have the freedom to, to bring our complaint before the Lord. Our prayers can be full of our emotions. They don't have to be no tidy theological essays. Uh, even if all you feel is despair, take that to the Lord. And, and that itself is a, a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it, it shows that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, that you are bringing even your despair uh, before the Lord. Um, when we bring our prayer before the Lord, it's okay to express our feelings. Just as an example, if there's someone that you've been praying for, for their conversion for a long time, uh, you don't have to limit yourself just to saying, Lord, I, I pray once again that, that this person would come to know Christ. It's okay for your emotion to well up and, and to say, how long, O oh Lord, how long will this friend of mine or this family member remain in darkness? How long uh, before you will grant them faith and repentance and awaken them out of their darkness? It, it's, it's not like we're prescribing rules for how you have to pray or that you have to sound very eloquent or anything like that. But if you have the emotion, feel free to let it come out before the Lord. Another takeaway, um, besides that it's okay to tell God how we feel, is that I think we should be careful in avoiding giving simplistic answers to each other when, when we are hearing from a brother or a sister who's experiencing some trial or tribulation. It's very easy to... Um, 
when someone shares with us a difficulty to come back with a, an answer that sounds very pious, but um, kind of short circuits the process of sympathizing with them. And I, I've experienced you all in the congregation um, being very equipped by the Lord to minister comfort to each other, and you all have ministered comfort and help to me. Um, but it can be a temptation for any of us sometimes to have simplistic answers that, that might even be phrases from God's word, but we're misusing them. Uh, for example, if someone um, says, I feel like God has forgotten me, it, it could be easy to say, well, we know God never forgets anything. And, and that is true. Or if someone uh, you know, feels dejected, we might say, well, it, it says to rejoice in the Lord. And that is true. Um, but, but that doesn't change the fact that it's okay to experience these feelings and to bring them before God. And part of the reason we know that they're legitimate is because Jesus himself experienced all of these elements. Uh, Jesus experienced uh, being forgotten. Um, he was abandoned by his disciples. And when he prayed to God, take this cup from me, Father, it was as if God had forgotten him. Um, he didn't receive a yes to that prayer. Uh, Jesus was uh, certainly um, ignored in, in, the, in the worst moment of his suffering when on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was ignored by the Father bearing the weight of all of our sins. He was dejected. Think of how in the garden he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood and he told his disciples, my soul is troubled even unto death. And Jesus was certainly oppressed. He was oppressed by the Pharisees who were persecuting him. He was oppressed by the temptations of the devil. He was oppressed by the weight of our sins as he was bearing them on the cross. And he was even oppressed by God himself as God the Father, uh, as his wrath fell upon Christ for our sakes. Uh, we read in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him, to crush him as it were. And not because he hated his son, but because he loved us so much that he was willing to put all of his wrath on Christ for our sakes. And so because Jesus Christ himself experienced being forgotten and being ignored and being dejected and being oppressed, we know that he is able as our high priest to sympathize with us when we feel this way. And it's precisely because we know he can and does sympathize with us that he will listen when we bring him our call and our prayer to deliver us. So let's look next at the call for deliverance in verses three and four. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Well, this is timely um, that we're looking at this request to light up my eyes, because we've been thinking a lot about light in other passages that we've been studying. Uh, just last week, uh, we were hearing from Pastor Tim that God is light and um, he, he is this completely perfect. He is the source of all goodness and perfection. And a few weeks before that, we were hearing from Pastor Matt in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the source of light for us. And here, when the psalmist asks, consider and answer and light up my eyes, I think the specific light he's talking about here um, is the light of life. Uh, you might remember from Psalm 27 that light can be a metaphor for holiness, it can be a metaphor for truth, um, but it can also be a metaphor for life. And I think here, um, he's in the context, since he's worried about sleeping the sleep of death, he's asking for light, uh, uh, the, the light of life, 
physical life and spiritual life. And who better to ask uh, for the light of life from than God? Because, of course, uh, God is the only one who can grant true light. Think all the way back to Genesis when God said, let there be light. God can sovereignly decide who receives light and who receives darkness. Uh, Children, this was very graphically illustrated if you think of the plagues in Egypt, you think about the ninth plague when God sent darkness over all of the land of Egypt for three days, but we read that the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And of course, ultimately, Jesus is the light. He tells us in John 8, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not have darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is truly the light when all other lights go out. And you might know that phrase from the Lord of the Rings, um, but the light that Jesus gives us is even better than the light of Galadriel. Um, It is the light that we most need. And I ask you tonight, can you say that you are in the light? Uh, Can you say like the blind man in John 9, can you say, once I was blind, but now I see? Can you say yes to that question? Can you say that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, can you say that he's shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4? Can you answer yes to those questions? If, if you can't, or if you're not sure, I urge you not to remain in darkness. Uh, no matter how dark your circumstances are, the darkness of our souls without Christ is even darker than that. In Ephesians 5, uh, God exhorts us, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Ask God to give you the light of Christ. Turn from the darkness of your sin. When you ask God for the light of Christ, he will uh, never fail to give it to you. Perhaps you can say yes to that question. If so, praise God. You can say, yes, Jesus has opened my eyes. But perhaps your vision feels a little blurry or or just dim, or cloudy, and you need fresh light. Well, the wonderful thing is that the light that um, Christ gives us isn't just a a one-time little flash of light. Children, if you think of going camping, imagine that you're going camping on a very dark and cloudy and moonless night. Um, What kind of light would you want to take with you? Would you want to take fireworks? Well, fireworks are fun, but it it wouldn't do very well for for a a long camping trip um, in the dark. You would probably want, um, well, if, if you could have the light of Galadriel, that would really be wonderful. But if you couldn't have that, um, wouldn't you want to have like one of those LED flashlights that lasts for 100 hours before needing to be recharged? Well, the light that Christ gives us, it's not just a one-time burst and flash when, when we first come to know him. Uh, oftentimes we do feel that when, we, when Christ first opens our eyes. It is like fireworks are going off, but it's not just a one-time flash the light of Christ lasts with us through our whole life, like one of those flashlights that just goes on and on and you can't believe that you don't need to change the batteries. And how does Christ give us light? Well, we know that he gives us light through his word and through the indwelling Holy Ghost. And if if you want more of the light of Christ dwelling with you, one way, a practical step to take is, is to just meditate on God's word and, and perhaps in particular some of the verses of light. Uh, one example could be in Micah 7 and verse 8. In Micah 7 and verse 8, uh, he says, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, 
the Lord shall be a light unto me. And perhaps that's a verse, Micah 7 and verse 8, that you could meditate on and even memorize um, if, if you're feeling discouraged and dejected. I also think of in Psalm 18 and verse 28 when, when uh, the psalmist says to the Lord, he says, you will light my candle. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. And, and what a beautiful picture and image that is. There's so many passages in, in the, uh, God's word that we could turn to to think about how the, the Lord is our light. Well, now that we've considered the psalmist's cry of distress and his call for deliverance, let's look in our last two verses at his commitment to devotion. Because God has given us light, he's given us the initial light of salvation and the ongoing light of our salvation, um, we are committed uh, to devotion to him. Uh, Verse five and six says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Wow, what a transformation we have here just in from verses one to four to verse five and six. Before he was felt forgotten and ignored and dejected and oppressed and suddenly he's praising God, he's extolling God. What's happened? Well, we don't hear recorded any specific changes in his situation. We don't see anything different in his circumstances. It seems that God has changed the psalmist himself through the process of prayer, through the process of bringing his complaint and his plea before the Lord. And isn't that often our own experience that we find that when we come to the Lord, um, he, he, even before anything in our circumstances has changed, and he can and does change our circumstances, we find that he's working a change from within us. One author said that this is often the case. He said, afflicted, depressed, and sad, we go to God. Everything seems dark. We have no peace, no clear and cheerful views, no joy. But as we wait upon God, new views of his character, his mercy, his love break upon the mind. The clouds open. Light beams upon us. Our souls take hold of the promises of God. And we, who went to his throne sad and desponding, rise from our devotions filled with praise and joy, submissive to the trials which made us so sad, and rejoicing in the belief that all things will work together for our good. I think that's a wonderful description that that hopefully resonates with, with what has happened to us in the past. Well, we see some specific elements of the psalmist's devotion. Um, He says he will trust, he will rejoice, and he will sing. So first of all, the psalmist will trust. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And if you were in Noah's Sunday school class, uh, you probably recognize this term, steadfast love. It's that wonderful Hebrew word that can be translated uh, God's mercy, his loving kindness, his faithful covenant-keeping love, his steadfast love, and really what is there that we can trust except for God's steadfast love? We can't trust in how many friends we have. We certainly can't trust in you know, how hard we've tried and the amazingness of our efforts. It's not even that we're trusting in um, you know, how persistent our prayers were or just the depth of our devotion to God or 
or how beautiful the, the cry that we lifted up to him was. We're not trusting in any of that. The only thing we are trusting in is his faithful mercies, his steadfast love. There's really nowhere else is there that we can trust, go to trust in. And we see that that trust uh, blossoms into rejoicing. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And what a constant source of joy this can be for us. Uh, the assurance that Christ has brought light into our souls. Uh, Christ himself demonstrates this trust and rejoicing. If you just look three psalms ahead at Psalm 16, uh, we know that this, these are words that um, specifically apply to Christ um, in Psalm 16 and verse 7, uh, David originally, but ultimately Christ, says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Have you ever wondered, how did Christ endure all those afflictions? How did he endure what he experienced in the cross? Well, well here is how. Here is the mind and heart of Christ. Therefore, going on in in verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that wonderful? The example that Christ sets for us in, in the trust that he exhibited toward his heavenly father and the joy that he took um, in, in what God was doing through him and for him. Well, this rejoicing can't just stay uh, within us. It has to burst out in song ultimately and that's what we see in verse six. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Note about this verb uh, singing that it's a singular verb. There are many places in the Psalms where it's plural Uh, Come, let us sing unto the Lord. And certainly we we do that in corporate worship. We've done it this very evening, singing together to the Lord. But here, uh, the verb is singular. And I think the implication is there should be times uh, when we're singing to the Lord, not just together in corporate worship, which I think is the sweetest time, but also throughout the week, uh, just on various occasions. Uh, You might ask yourself, when was the last time that I uh, just sang to God in response uh, to something that he did for me. I think children, again, are a wonderful example for us here. Uh, Little children are always singing aloud to themselves. And again, we might find it a little annoying sometimes, but I can guarantee you that God is never annoyed when when we are singing in praise to him. And if you think, oh, I'm not sure if I can do that, uh, well, you can find maybe a recording and sing along with some recording. Every week, uh, just recently, Dottie has started sending out a YouTube link Um, to uh, whatever we're going to be singing and and you could sing along with that perhaps. And what is the psalmist singing about? Well, he says that the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. Now, um, this word uh, bounty, bountifully, it should make you think of a super abundance. Uh, Perhaps you can think of Psalm 23 when the psalmist says, my cup is running over. Um, Or I think of in in, um, the gospels when Christ fed the 5,000 and there was a super abundance of food. They had thought they were going to run out of food, but everyone was full and there were 12 basketfuls left over of the, of the you know, leftover pieces that they picked up. Uh, children, have you ever experienced a wonderful 
a dinner at some holiday, perhaps a, a big Thanksgiving dinner or a big Christmas dinner. And of course, the best part is the dessert at the end. And do you think you would, how would you feel if you looked and you saw that your whole family was gathered together and there was just, you know, one little pie sitting there on the dessert table? You might be a little nervous, like how tiny is my sliver going to be? But imagine instead, this is especially what happens on my mother's side of the family. They love making pies. And if you don't like pies, you can just substitute cakes or cookies in your mind or ice cream. Imagine that there's a whole table and it's covered with pies. There may be a dozen pies and there's pumpkin pie and there's summer fruit pie and there's pecan pie and there's cranberry pie and there's custard pie and there's apple pie and our our specialty with a, a secret family recipe, there's butterscotch chiffon pie. That's, that's the image that you should have of how God deals bountifully with us. And if you're ever wondering, well, well, what are some of the ways he's dealt bountifully with us? You could just open your hymnal and I encourage you to do this now. Just open your hymnal that's in front of you and just look right at the very beginning at the table of contents. And you can look at the table of contents and this, as it were, imagine that this is like the dessert menu, right? Each item on here is something, uh, part of God's bounty toward us, something that you can give praise for him. There are, of course, all of the attributes of God that, that are so wonderful and that we enjoy so much, his, his wisdom, his goodness, his justice. Um, there's Jesus Christ and all of his works, his atoning work, his resurrection, his exaltation, his priestly intercession, or you can turn the page to the second page of the menu and see the different elements of our salvation, our election, our union with Christ, our adoption, um, elements of the Christian life. It goes on and on. It's, you can almost treat this as like the menu of things to give thanks for, the menu of God's bounty toward us. And um, if you don't know where to start in singing, I think one excellent example is just to start with a number 57 which is a setting of Psalm 146. I, I like to call it the biography of every Christian. In Psalm 146, we sing, food, he daily gives the hungry. Uh, God feeds us and, and he feeds us physical food and he feeds us with his word. Food, he daily sets the hungry, gives the hungry, sets the mourning prisoner free. Have you been set free from your sins and your misery? Praise God for that. You can sing this Psalm to him. It goes on and on. Well, uh, one final question to ask yourself is, uh, there are lots of things that we pray about for a long time, perhaps for years. If there's something that you've been praying about for a long time and then God answers it, do you take just as long a time afterward to respond to him in thanks? Uh, I'm not trying to make this a legalistic rule here, but so often we pray for something for months and months and God answers our prayer and we say thank you and, and just kind of move on. But it could be a cause to just continue giving God thanks just for as long as you were praying for it. Well, we've seen here in this psalm uh, a protest, a prayer, and a praise. And my prayer is that it would be a pattern for us in bringing before God our cries of distress, uh, our calls for deliverance to him, and then our commitment to devotion. Let us pray now to God together. Our great triune God, uh, we come and bless your name. Father, we thank you that you love to hear not only our praises, but you even love to hear our laments. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you became a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief, and you took 
our sorrows upon us and you know the full range of human emotions and yet without sin. And Holy Ghost, we thank you that you are making intercession for us uh, with groanings that cannot be uttered. Father and Son and Holy Ghost, uh, we ask that you would make us quick to come before you, uh, not only with our cries of distress, but also with our praises of thanksgiving for your bounty, which you have shown us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.